Part 5, Risk Area, Vectors, and Wildlife. In this lesson, we will discuss how vectors and wildlife reservoirs play important roles in the transmission of several zoonotic diseases in rural communities. Rural settings provide prime habitat for disease-carrying arthropod vectors, as well as wildlife reservoirs and scavenger species, which all play important roles in the maintenance, exposure risks, and transmission of several important diseases for people and domestic animals found on the farm. While the complete exclusion can be difficult, efforts should be taken to minimize interaction of livestock or poultry with these species. Disease-carrying arthropods include members of the insect and arachnid families. The role of the vector may be mechanical by simply carrying pathogens on their bodies from one location to the next. Most flies, gnats, and even cockroaches serve as important mechanical vectors. Biological vectors are required for the life cycle of the pathogen and include most blood-feeding arthropods like mosquitoes and ticks. For most vector-borne diseases, livestock and poultry serve as the primary reservoir from which the arthropod obtains the pathogen. It subsequently transfers the organism from the infected animal to a susceptible person or animal. Transfer of the microorganism may occur by direct inoculation from a bite or contamination through the vector's feces or body fluid. Vectors can transmit disease agents over relatively large distances significantly complicating disease control efforts. Vector-borne diseases are also a shared risk for both people and animals. Clinical signs in humans or domestic species can warn of the incidence of diseases in an area or region. Let's first look at West Nile virus, one of the most common mosquito-borne diseases in the United States. The disease primarily circulates in wild birds, among mammals, equids and humans are the main species that develop clinical disease, but both are dead-end hosts. Members of the genus Culex are the main vectors worldwide. Most horses are infected asymptomatically. In clinical cases, illness is characterized by anorexia, depression, and neurological signs, including ataxia, weakness, paralysis, tremors, convulsions, and circling. Tremors of the face and neck muscles are very common. Some animals die spontaneously, but many severely affected animals are euthanized for humane reasons. Most, but not all, horses return to full function. Approximately 10 to 20% of horses are estimated to have residual deficits. A commercial vaccine is available for horses. Many West Nile virus infections in humans are also asymptomatic. Illness has been classified into two forms. West Nile fever, which is a flu-like illness, and West Nile neuroinvasive disease, which encompasses all cases with neurological signs. This form of the disease can be severe, resulting in encephalitis, meningitis, or acute flaccid paralysis. Fatal infections occur mainly in elderly people with underlying health conditions. There is no specific treatment other than supportive care. Time for a scenario. You are an equine veterinarian in South Dakota. You are called out on emergency to a newer client's farm to evaluate a horse showing neurological signs. The horse is ataxic, head pressing, and hypersensitive to any stimuli. You obtain history on the horse and discover that the owner and her horse returned from a show on the East Coast about three days ago. She also mentioned that the mosquitoes were terrible when they were out there 
which she did not expect so early in the year. It had been unseasonably warm on the East Coast over the past few weeks. What diseases are you concerned about, and are there any risks to the owner? While rabies should be considered for any neurological disease in animals, given the travel history and mosquito exposure, you suspect eastern equine encephalitis virus. The equine encephalomyelitis viruses are all alpha viruses in the family Togaviridae and most commonly transmitted by mosquitoes or other blood-feeding insects. The general life cycle of the viruses involves transmission between birds and or rodents and mosquitoes. Eastern equine encephalomyelitis, or EEE, occurs in eastern Canada, U.S. states east of the Mississippi River and South America. The virus is maintained in wild bird populations and transmitted by Culicetta melanuria mosquitoes. Western equine encephalomyelitis, or WEE, occurs in the western portion of the U.S. and Canada, as well as Mexico and South America. This virus is also maintained in wild bird populations, but is transmitted by Culex tarsalis mosquitoes. WEE can also be transmitted by the Tickderma Center Andersoni. Venezuelan equine encephalomyelitis, or VEE, occurs in Central America, South America, and Mexico. Occasionally, the disease is found in states in the southern U.S. Enzootic VEE strains cycle between mosquitoes in the genus Culex and small mammals, such as rodents, while horses are the amplifying hosts for epidemic VEE strains. There are many competent mosquito vectors for epidemic VEE, including Aedes, Anopheles, Culex, and others. These three diseases cause nonspecific illnesses and encephalitis in equids and humans. In horses, mortality can be moderate to high. Clinical signs can include impaired vision, aimless wandering, head pressing, circling, inability to swallow, irregular gait, weakness and paralysis, as well as convulsions and death. Many horses also have a fever. There is no specific treatment for these viruses. Unvaccinated horses are particularly susceptible and often serve as sentinels. Immunizations against EEE and WEE are core prophylaxis for all horses residing in or traveling to North America. Immunization against VEE is a risk-based assessment of the horse's potential exposure. VEE is also a reportable foreign animal disease. In 2019, 184 equine cases of EEE were reported to the USDA. This map shows the distribution of these cases with the darker red coloration indicating more than 25 cases for that state. EEE is a life-threatening disease in equids with a case fatality rate as high as 90% in horses with encephalitis. Many surviving animals have severe residual neurological signs. Mortality is lower for WEE and variable for VEE. Human eastern equine encephalomyelitis cases are infrequent. However, infections are highly pathogenic. People who work outdoors in endemic areas are at increased risk of infection. Those over the age of 50 or under the age of 15 are at greater risk for developing severe disease when infected with the EEE virus. The case fatality rate for neuroinvasive disease is about 30%, and of those that survive, approximately half have neurological sequelae. 
Eastern equine encephalomyelitis is a nationally notifiable condition for people. On average, eight human cases are reported each year in the U.S. However, in the fall of 2019, the CDC received reports of 34 human cases of EEE from seven eastern states. All 34 patients were hospitalized and 12 of them died. Human WEE infections tend to be milder than EEE. VEE is also mild in humans, although pregnant women can experience abortion or stillbirth and congenital neurological anomalies may be seen. So back to our scenario, what recommendations would you make to the owner? First, express empathy about the situation and recommend humanely euthanizing the horse. EEE has a very poor prognosis with no specific treatment and a fatality rate of 90%. Use reflective listening to understand her concerns and build trust. Discuss the transmission of the disease and the risk to her and any other horses that she may have taken out east. Vaccinations are available and encouraged for her other horses given her travel history. You should also encourage the owner to perform diagnostics to confirm that the horse has EEE, since it is a nationally notifiable disease for horses within the U.S. Efforts to prevent mosquitoes on the farm should be taken, and if possible, other horses should be housed away from mosquito exposure. Although exposure of this horse likely occurred during the travel east, Western equine encephalitis would be a concern in her home state. This disease is also an important risk for humans. She may have been exposed as well while at the horse show. She should monitor her health, and if she feels ill, contact her health care provider to share the history and situation with them. She should try to avoid exposure to mosquitoes here at home by using protective measures such as insect repellents and long sleeve clothing while outdoors, since mosquitoes can carry a wide variety of pathogenic diseases. Ticks are another important arthropod vector. Several different species are associated with the spread of a variety of diseases, many of which are zoonotic. In addition to the transmission of disease, animals that become heavily infested can have poor performance leading to economic impacts. In August 2017, a novel species of tick for the United States was discovered on an infested sheep. Hemophysalis longicornis, or the Asian longhorn tick. Since its detection, these parasites have been rapidly expanding within the U.S. By 2018, they were found in seven states, and by 2020, 12 states. They feed on a variety of animals, including cattle, horses, pigs, deer, dogs, cats, and more, as well as people. The Asian longhorn tick is capable of transmitting a number of diseases of veterinary importance, such as thylariosis and anaplasmosis, and like other tick species, can result in production losses and even death from anemia. It has also been found to transmit anaplasmosis in humans and babesiosis in dogs. One unique and disheartening characteristic of the Asian longhorn tick is that the females can reproduce asexually or without males, making control efforts very challenging. Let's look at two other examples of tick-borne zoonoses. Lyme disease is a tick-borne illness usually caused by infection with the bacteria Borrelii burgdorferi. It is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. The main reservoir for the bacteria in the United States are rodents, especially the white-footed mouse. Transmission occurs by two important tick vectors, Ixodes scapularis, the deer tick, in the eastern and midwestern U.S., 
and Ixodes pacificus, the western black-legged tick on the Pacific coast. Lyme disease is poorly understood in animals, however dogs can develop arthritis and nephropathy, and clinical signs linked to Lyme disease have also been reported in species like horses and cattle. Vaccines are available for dogs but not humans. Some human infections are asymptomatic. In clinical cases, a bullseye rash called erythema migrans is often the first sign of disease along with fever, headache, and fatigue. Additional symptoms such as joint swelling and pain, facial palsy, nerve pain, and Lyme carditis may develop weeks to months later. Antibiotic treatment is required. Ehrlichiosis is a collective name for a group of tick-borne diseases caused by the bacteria in the genus Ehrlichia. Most human cases are caused by Ehrlichia chafiensis. White-tailed deer are important reservoirs in North America, and transmission mainly occurs by Amblyoma americanum, the lone star tick. Clinical disease is uncommon in livestock, but cases have been reported in dogs. In people, ehrlichiosis varies from a mild or asymptomatic infection to a severe, possibly fatal disease. Clinical presentation can range from a mild febrile illness to fulminant disease with multi-organ failure. Gastrointestinal signs, including nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain are fairly common. Other symptoms may include anorexia, photophobia, conjunctivitis, joint pain, coughing, and confusion. A rash occurs in about one-third of cases and is most common in children. Let's look at another scenario. You are a large animal practitioner in the South. A longtime client confides in you that his father has cancer and is undergoing chemotherapy. Your client's father has always wanted to go fishing in Wisconsin and stay in a cabin on the lake. He would like to fulfill his dad's dream, but he is worried about the ticks up there, especially Lyme disease. Your client trusts your judgment and is asking your opinion on what precautions should be taken to protect his father. You understand the brevity of the situation and the increased risk that immunocompromised individuals may have to a variety of diseases. You can talk with the client about the variety of ticks that are found in Wisconsin and the diseases that can be transmitted through bites. Lyme disease is certainly one of those, as well as anaplasmosis and babesiosis. Share with him the following recommendations. Wearing protective clothing, such as long pants, long sleeve shirts and socks, and closed-toed shoes when outdoors, especially if they are in wooded areas or tall vegetation. Use EPA-approved insect repellents, such as one containing DEET. It may also be wise of your client's father to check with his physician for any potential contraindications for using chemicals with his medical condition. They should both check their bodies daily for ticks, especially around constricted areas, such as the waistbands and socks. Share with him the nymphs can be the size of a poppy seed and very hard to see. Showering after being outdoors can aid in removing ticks from the body. If the cabin has a dryer, tumble drying their clothing every evening on high heat for 10 minutes will help to kill any hitchhiking ticks. It's also important to monitor for any signs of disease, a rash, fever, chills, headache, muscle aches or fatigue, and obviously contact his doctor right away. The incubation period for Lyme disease is variable, ranging from three to 30 days. As we have seen throughout the different parts of this lesson, some vermin and wildlife play an important role in the exposure and transmission of zoonotic diseases, either as mechanical vectors or reservoirs of disease. These animals may interact with domestic livestock and poultry kept outdoors on pastures 
or through shared water sources. Rodents, for example, can be involved in the transmission of salmonellosis. Feral swine are a potential source Feral swine are a potential source of brucellosis for domestic pigs and hunters. Wild birds are known reservoirs for avian influenza, and wildlife such as white-tailed deer can harbor bovine tuberculosis. So what measures might be used to prevent zoonoses that can be acquired from vectors? Of course, avoiding arthropod vectors whenever possible is one step. Implementing vector and vermin control programs is also an important step to minimize exposures. This will involve understanding the life cycle of the arthropod, rodent, or bird to determine the most effective preventative measures. Additionally, minimizing contact of animals with wildlife, such as deer or feral swine, can be helpful but challenging. We will talk about each of these preventative measures in greater detail in Lesson 3. In this lesson, we covered a wide variety of diseases for each of the key risk areas in rural communities. Please complete the quiz for Lesson 2 and continue to Lesson 3, where we will discuss how some general prevention practices can be used to minimize exposure risks for these diseases.